The states are following the federal government's lead to the extent that there's kind of momentum for regulatory reform and for red tape reduction. So there are a number of states that have implemented red tape reduction programs over the last few years. Now, like the federal experience, it's unclear exactly how much regulation has been reduced as a result of these efforts. I think we're still beginning to understand that and get a sense of what's been reduced. But there's there's certainly momentum for regulatory reform in general, but we're, we're still trying to understand how successful it's been. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Even in the middle of a partial federal government shutdown, federal, state, and local agencies continue to play a huge role in the policy world and in our everyday lives. Regulations help determine everything from the kind of toothpaste you use this morning to the music you listen to on the radio during your commute to rent prices in your neighborhood. And after an exciting year of regulatory policy in 2018, I'm eager to hear more about how the regulatory landscape may change in the year ahead. Here to help walk us through that and to make some predictions about what we might expect from policymakers in 2019, I'm joined by three terrific guests. First, it's my pleasure to welcome Cheryl Bolin to the show. Cheryl reports in the White House for Bloomberg BNA and is well known as one of the top regulatory journalists in the country. It's great to have you on the show, Cheryl. Thanks. Next, we welcome Emily Hamilton back to the show. Emily is an economist here at Mercatus focusing on urban economics and land use policy. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks for having me. Finally, also a repeat guest, we have James Broll. James is an economist with Mercatus and a law professor specializing in state and federal regulatory procedures. Welcome back to the show, James. Thanks, Chad. Great to be here. I always like to start with a little open-ended question to get us rolling here. As regulatory policy experts, you all know better than I do what questions we should even be asking at this point. So what issues are you all watching for the year ahead? You know, I mentioned an exciting 2018, a lot happened in the regulatory policy space. If there's one particular issue, whether it's a specific regulation or a specific process change, what are you all sort of holding your breath in eager anticipation waiting to see in the regulatory world in 2019? I'm really watching the federal level, which is unusual in land use because it's primarily a local and to some extent a state issue. But three major potential presidential candidates all have land use bills in the Senate. Senators Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Elizabeth Warren have all introduced bills that would seek to promote housing affordability. And then HUD has looked at potential tools that they have to encourage improved housing affordability and more housing supply in the cities where it's needed. And of course, there are, there's activity at the local and state levels, as is more common, but the federal level is really an exciting one for the coming year. So I'm really interested in the regulatory reforms that are going on in Virginia right now. So last year, Virginia passed a bipartisan legislation called the Red Tape Reduction Pilot Program. They're creating an inventory system to count and track regulatory requirements at at two state agencies, which are engaged in occupational licensing primarily. And in the past couple months, they've actually counted the requirements at these agencies, and they've set a goal to cut requirements by about 5,000 in total across these two agencies. So it will be interesting to see in the year ahead how successful they are at at achieving this target. Also interested to see whether other states might start to copy this Virginia model. I know Ohio, for example, has proposed legislation that's very similar to what Virginia has done, except a little bit more aggressive. And so that should be something to watch in the year ahead. So what I'm looking for is really the big picture overall level of deregulation that the Trump administration uh, is going to try to continue to push, 
but it's unclear how successful this administration is going to be in uh, trying to overturn a lot of the uh, major federal regulations that were um, enacted or at least developed in the Obama administration. The last couple years have seen a lot of the, what I'll call the low-hanging fruit, some of the smaller regulations uh, overturned. But really what's left for agencies to do are some of the more major, especially environmental regulations. But the courts have been pretty stringent on analysis and, and whether those are uh, done correctly. And so I think it's it's going to be really difficult for agencies uh, this year to keep up the level of deregulation that, that this administration has seen in the past. Especially if the agencies aren't open. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> Cheryl, that actually sets us up really well. We actually did an episode back in October talking about sort of the Trump administration's deregulatory efforts, specifically executive order that essentially says executive agencies should be removing a couple of regulations for every new one. That, that's implemented. So maybe we can just dive into the sort of fallout from that in 2019 that we might expect. And again, this might be on the state level. I think we were talking just a second ago before we started recording about our states responding to a reduction in federal regulation. So do you guys have any thoughts on whether it's federal agencies responding to that executive order uh, or whether it's states sort of either increasing their regulatory activity to fill in the gap or are they following suit? What is the regulatory world doing in response so far to the Trump administration's efforts on regulatory reform? I think that the states are following the federal government's lead to the to the extent that there's kind of momentum for regulatory reform and for red tape reduction in general. So there are a number of states that have implemented red tape reduction programs over the last few years. Kentucky is one. Illinois is another. Missouri. Now, like the federal experience, it's it's unclear exactly how much regulation has been reduced as a result of these efforts. I think I think we're still. Uh, beginning to understand that, and and we're still starting to measure that and and get a sense of what's been reduced. But there's there's certainly momentum for regulatory reform in general, but we're we're still trying to understand how successful it's been. That's right. That's what that's something that I've been noticing too. Although the uh, president has talked a lot about cutting regulation, slashing regulation, rolling back red tape. When you drill down and ask, well, what does that really mean? The results have been fewer existing regulations that have actually been cut. Uh, certainly some have, but not in the huge numbers that, that some of his rhetoric might suggest. What you, you're seeing more often is agencies simply aren't issuing a lot of new regulations. So they're not adding regulations, federal regulations, to the books in, in nearly the numbers that previous administrations um, had done. And so while there has been a reduction in regulation overall, it's more new regulation rather than existing. And so almost the status quo is still, to some extent, uh, in place. One exception I'll mention uh, is Rhode Island, where basically in the process of creating an online regulatory code, they set an expiration date for all the regulations that were on the books. And, and every agency had to refile their regulations in order to get them to continue it being in effect. And in the process of doing this, they seem to have cut about 30% of their regulatory pages. So this is actually an example where there seems to have been a significant reduction in regulation. 
In the housing affordability and land use space, I'd say the state and federal governments are really responding to what local governments are doing. Housing affordability has become a much more salient topic at the state and federal level as it's becoming more and more of a challenge in household budgets. And so states and federal governments are looking at what levers they can pull to encourage localities to allow more housing to be built and in turn for house prices to become more reasonable. So that's interesting. So it sounds like at the sort of macro federal level, there's some status quo going on, the sort of little bit of a pause maybe, but sort of in particular instances, maybe as James, you mentioned, some states are following suit on the slowing down of regulatory implementation. But then there are these specific niches or specific industries where there's a, a really interesting interplay between state and local and, and federal agencies. I, w- I want to stay on that topic just for a second and ask what's always a tough question, I think. We are people who sit around and talk and think about regulation a lot. And so these things all make sense to us. And we sort of say, oh, oh, a reduction in regulations by this much, that obviously has meaning for us. I think for some of our listeners, those can be kind of abstract. So I'm going to ask us to all take off actually our, our regulatory expert hats just for a second. And think by the end of 2019, what might be different? And you can have wild speculation if you like, but what might be different in an everyday American's life as a result of regulatory change? And that might be predicated on some specific change that you that, that may or may not happen. But what might the world look like uh, at the end of 2019 because of regulatory change? I would say that you know one of the reasons why I think. Virginia was focused on occupational licensing is that there's a lot of consensus that certain kinds of regulations create barriers for people um, to move up the income ladder, to you know create opportunities for themselves to get better jobs. Uh, and so one of the main practical effects that regulations can have is just make it harder for people to start a business or to get employment in certain areas or to move to certain areas where there's more opportunity because the housing is more expensive. Now, you have to obviously be careful if you're going to remove regulatory restrictions from the books. But the practical effect is that it can create more opportunity for people and it can create more economic growth and greater levels of well-being and flourishing. It's kind of a slow-acting process. You're not necessarily going to see the immediate visible effects in in a year and say, ah, it was regulatory reform that that did this. Uh, It's a slow-acting process. I'm going to take a wild guess here, uh, maybe a slightly different take. But what I'm seeing are several complaints about environmental damage uh, that's coming. Uh, California wildfires, um, drinking water in Wisconsin, rising sea levels, um, all sorts of natural sort of disasters. The debate about climate change, um, which to most people isn't really a debate, but to certain high-level uh, individuals, it, it, it apparently still is. And I'm wondering if some of the environmental damage continues, if people are, you know, regular citizens are going to say, hey, maybe a certain amount of regulation isn't such a bad thing. Um, we need protecting, you know, our, our E. coli and, you know, food safety. Is that going to be a, a real-life problem that people are grappling with? And maybe we need stronger environmental regulation, um, whether that's done at the state and local level or whether there's going to be a call for EPA to step up. I think that's something that really affects people's lives and is, is more in the news now. And, you know, there may be a, 
in fact, a, a sort of a backlash and a call for more regulation. At the local level, most Americans aren't going to see any big changes to land use policy in 2019, but there will be a few exceptions. Minneapolis recently passed a new comprehensive plan that allows density up to triplexes in single family, in what were previously single family neighborhoods. This is still just in its plan phase. It hasn't actually been enacted in their zoning ordinance. But in Minnesota, it's generally a pretty straightforward process from comprehensive plan to zoning ordinance, unlike in other cities where the goals laid out in their comprehensive plans may not be reflected in the actual regulations. So there there will be a pretty substantial difference where neighborhoods that have been blocked off to exclusively single-family development will be seeing a little bit more density where it's feasible to do that in the coming years. And it, that'll be a pretty modest change. A lot of times duplexes or triplexes might look pretty much like single-family homes from the street, but they allow more people to access neighborhoods that uh, they wouldn't be able to afford if they if only single family development were allowed. And to Cheryl's point, uh, environmental goals can be helped by liberalizing land use regulations, allowing more people to live in neighborhoods where they can complete some errands on foot, walk to the grocery store, or even walk to work. And a lot of focus on land use regulation has been on liberalizing land use regulations along transit corridors, so allowing more people to access the the rail and bus lines that are already in place. Emily, you had mentioned before about a number of bills on, on local land use issues in Congress. I want to switch a little bit and transition to, to Congress. We obviously have now a divided legislature. Democrats control the House. Republicans still control the Senate. Does that dynamic affect what you all expect to see from the regulatory process at this point in the year ahead? Or is it sort of all up to the federal agencies and whether or not anything happens in Congress is sort of a moot point? Well, what I'm seeing is that the the big uh, change in Congress this year isn't going to be so much legislation with a divided Congress. Obviously, you're not probably not going to get much agreement on legislation. But uh, the House now being controlled by Democrats is very, very interested in uh, investigations. And what I'm hearing is that uh, many of the the oversight, the judiciary committees are going to be calling up agencies and agency heads and asking all sorts of questions, questions that just weren't asked in the last two years under Republican control. And so now with Democrats as chairman are going to be asking agencies, why are you deregulating? What is the purpose? Can you justify what you're doing? These problems are still existing. What are you going to do about them? Um, And so uh, I think what you're really going to see is agency spending, agency um, directors spending a lot of time preparing for oversight hearings, going up to Capitol Hill. Um, A lot of resources are going to be drawn away from the regular sort of rulemaking activities in response to Congress and fulfilling information requirements from them. And so I think you're really going to see a slowdown in sort of all sorts of activity at the agency level uh, because of the uh, democratic control in the House. So I would agree with that. Even before the divided Congress, I mean, there wasn't that much hope for regulatory reform, even when Republicans had unified control, given the 60 vote rule in the Senate. Uh, I think a, a big question right now is who's going to be the new OIRA administrator, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. This is a small 
regulatory office within the Office of Management and Budget. It's kind of the who, – who, the person who runs this office is kind of the regulatory czar, so to speak, for, for the administration. Right now, Naomi Rao, the current administrator, is leaving. Maybe she left already. I'm not sure. But um, so we're kind of waiting to see who her replacement will be. And this person will have an important role in carrying forward the administration's reforms. So I've been tracking that a little bit. So Naomi Rao uh, has been nominated to serve on the D.C. uh, Circuit Court, and uh, she will be having a a confirmation hearing coming up. That hasn't been scheduled yet. But the Senate has been moving forward with judges' uh, judicial nominations relatively quickly. Um, And so when she leaves will, of course, depend on, on when she can be confirmed by the Senate. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out who might be the next OIRA administrator. I agree that's an important position uh, for the overall regulatory policy of this uh, administration and fulfilling the executive orders and keeping agencies uh, in line. I've really only heard one name so far, uh, Paul Noe, who currently used to work for for OMB in the Bush administration and is now with the American Forest and Paper Association. He was considered a candidate um, in 2017, uh, along with Naomi Rao. She she was eventually chosen uh, to serve, um, but he he may be coming up. But how long it takes the president to make another nomination? Uh, the president currently, uh, you know, right now he's dealing with a government shutdown, but also a lot of a lot of vacancies government wide. Um, I do not know if he's going to pick Paul Noe or how long it might take, but that position could remain just under an acting administrator for a while. And that would also be a a delay, I think, in the overall policy of of the Trump administration. You both just mentioned courts there. And and Cheryl, I know you had mentioned sort of the role the courts play in this process in, in your first response. Any thoughts there on either particular legislative issues or regulatory issues that are pending before the courts or things we might expect to see courts act on that would sort of shape the regulatory framework in 2019? This isn't necessarily an area I have a lot of expertise in, but I know there's a case um, that's going before the Supreme Court related to the idea of our deference which is the the idea of courts deferring to regulatory agencies when interpreting their own regulations and policy documents and things along those lines. It's an important issue in administrative law, and there might be changes coming from the Supreme Court, but I don't have much to say beyond that. Mostly, I think everything and anything <laughs> that's put out by agencies right now uh, can expect to end up in, in court, especially the bigger environmental regulations, um, the waters of the U.S., um, the mercury emission standards. Uh, I know that the, the federal EPA has been really looking to overturn some major Obama-era uh, environmental regulations, and those those are highly controversial. And of course, they'll be challenged. Now, like everything else, um, the rulemaking process takes forever. Um, Not literally, but months and months, if not years. It certainly feels like forever at times. So uh, so, um, a lot of these are still in the proposal stages, getting public comment, um, which also, by the way, has all been delayed because of uh, the government shutdown. Uh, EPA has been shut down as well. You know, when those finally get published and then likely will immediately go to the courts, I think the courts are going to have a huge impact on which regulations are 
ultimately overturned or uh, whether they're sent back to the agencies for, for reworking. Um, whether that can happen in this year or, or spill over into next year, the timing, you know, it, it's, it's all up in the air right now. But um, the, the courts are, are certainly a key player here. One of the other things that I was watching on, on a legal standpoint is uh, confirmation of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to be justice at, at the Supreme Court. And he has been um, highly skeptical of the Chevron deference, which again, like our, gives deference to agencies. And uh, whether he's going to look a little bit more skeptically or strictly uh, at agency decision-making. And uh, I think that when administrative law cases come before the Supreme Court, he'll definitely have something to say about how those are interpreted. In the land use space as well, I think there could be some potential changes in having a more conservative Supreme Court to what's been established in the past. A key principle of land use law is that regulations must have a nexus to the development that's in question and be proportional to that uh, development's impact on the community. One area where this has been called into question is inclusionary zoning, which is a very popular and a regulation that more and more cities are adopting that requires new developments to include a portion of units that are below market rate. So for example, a 100-unit apartment building might be required to have 20 units that go for below what the market rate is on the others. And some conservative legal scholars have questioned whether this meets the nexus and proportionality standards because new development is what ultimately makes housing more affordable. So is taxing new development to provide affordable housing and appropriate use of land use regulation. Uh, So that's one area where a more conservative court might present an incentive to bring more, more cases sort of interesting that we've got these administrative law issues playing out in the background. So I think anybody who's a court watcher on the one hand can be watching, you know, high profile environmental regulatory issues in the courts or these sort of maybe slightly more obscure, but no less important uh, issues playing on even at the Supreme Court, uh, as you mentioned, James. It does seem that the courts just are playing more and more of a role over time. Virtually everything, especially at the federal level, it gets finalized. Every rule, it gets challenged, or at least all the big regulations get challenged in one form or another in the courts. And so the courts have the final say, ultimately, what what happens. Well, it almost makes me sort of chuckle. Cheryl, you mentioned you know, delays being an issue here. And you know, obviously, a lot of these agencies have statutory deadlines when they're supposed to have these rules out. So I imagine these agencies in a sort of frustrating catch-22 where you, you mentioned they're going to be on the Hill a lot before oversight and investigation committees spending time doing that. They're going to be spending time in court defending regulatory decisions. And then after all that's said and done, they're probably going to miss some statutory deadlines. And then they're going to be back in court because they didn't pass things in the statutory deadlines. So... No one ever said government was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not. I think we have successfully made a bunch of predictions today, uh, and we've hit on a lot of topics. Certainly, one cannot cover everything that's going to go on in the regulatory policy world in one year in a mere 30 minutes or so. So I hope we've touched on most of the big issues. But 
because you all work on this, not just for 30 minutes, but all year round, uh, we do want to make sure that we connect you with our listeners who want to follow up on your work and kind of follow you as, as you, you track these issues throughout the year. So we'll just kind of go around the table and maybe starting with you, Cheryl, on you know, where can folks go online, whether it's you know, Twitter or something you've, you've written recently to, to keep up to date on these issues. Right. Well, I am a, a news reporter for Bloomberg Government, um, and we have a Bloomberg Government website, but I try to keep things up in real time. I'm pretty active on Twitter, at Cheryl Bolin on Twitter, and that's where you can read a lot of what I've been working on. I'm also on Twitter at EBW Hamilton, and I share my work there. I'm on Twitter at James Broll. I'd say also check out The Bridge, which is a Mercatus website where we summarize a lot of recent Mercatus research. And as always, you could find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese, or feel free to email me at crease at mercatus.gmu.edu with all your questions, comments, episode ideas, or complaints. With that, stick around for our What's on Tap conversation with co-host Kate Delanoy, and we'll see you in a few. While that wraps up our policy conversation, we are not done with the show today. It is time for our What's on Tap segment. So I am joined by co-host Kate Delanoy here in the studio. And today we have Odul's Premium Amber. So I mentioned before we started recording that there was a little bit of a twist today. That twist today is that we're trying a non-alcoholic beer. We'll get to that uh, when we get to rating it. But as I pour that, why don't you let our listeners know what's going on at Mercatus this week? Yeah, so we are back in 2019 and kick things off. Kevin Erdman, who is a visiting scholar here, has a op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and it's looking at the 2008 housing crisis and really exploring what was going on. And he really flips the narrative on its head. It's all com- this op-ed is based on the book he's got coming out with us, Shut Out. So you can go to our website, go to Amazon, get the book. Um, and I really just encourage folks to check out the piece because I think it does a really good job of summarizing kind of why a lot of folks miss the real causes of the crisis. Yeah. And Kevin's got kind of a counterintuitive take on this. I won't spoil it for people. I encourage him to go check out the, the Wall Street Journal op-ed. But a lot of what folks talk about for the housing crisis, the financial crisis, Kevin's got a little bit different approach to that. So it's something you probably haven't read before. It's definitely something a little bit different. And also things that are new here, we've got Christine McDaniel did a paper for Mercatus and it looks at some new survey data that's become available and specifically looking at small business and medium businesses in Australia and looking at their behavior. And it finds that businesses that have a platform on Facebook are more likely to be exporting than businesses in general in Australia. And so the data, like all of the research finds that if you're a company that's exporting, you are in the top in terms of economic indicators, in terms of better wage growth. So it's really an advantage for the company and for the folks who work there if your company is exporting. And so as you know, folks are thinking about what are the regulations that we need on these digital platforms in this day and age, um, Christine is making the point that it's really important to keep in mind that there's a lot of small, medium-sized businesses that are are using platforms like Facebook to really improve the overall economic projection of their company. So in other words, we might have issues with some online platforms. There might be some room at the margin to make them a little bit better via policy, but let's be careful and not take away some of these significant economic benefits, especially from small and mid-sized companies that really rely on them. Yeah, especially the unintended consequences that you may not think about when making some of the, the bigger policy changes. 
And then finally, you know, you were talking about regulations earlier, and we have a new paper out today by several folks, including our very own Patrick McLaughlin. And it's looking at how regulations impact low-income households. And it's something that maybe might be a little bit counterintuitive to folks because the idea with regulations is to help even the playing field, make sure that everybody has a safe place uh, to live and work. But a lot of the regulations end up costing a lot of money, making things more expensive, making it harder for folks to buy things or have wage growth. And so there's a lot of interesting findings in there. And I would encourage all our listeners to go check that out up on our website today. Yeah, especially for anyone who was interested in that question I asked. This was, Kate, before you uh, you joined us in the studio. But I, I asked, you know, take off your regulatory expert hat for a second and think about how regulations this year might affect sort of everyday Americans in their day-to-day lives. And I think this is exactly the kind of research that sheds some light on that that question in particular. But so thanks for sharing the highlights coming out this week. Let's get on to the beer rating. I mentioned that this is a little bit of a twist. We are doing a non-alcoholic beer this week. The reason for that is simple. It's January in the new year, and a lot of folks use that as an opportunity to sort of make resolutions that improve their health. Part of that is sometimes partially or all the way abstaining from alcohol. And so in solidarity with folks that might be doing that, we're going with a non-alcoholic beer. I'm curious of what your thoughts are. Yeah, I have never had a non-alcoholic beer before, but I I actually like this. I could see enjoying this at a summer cookout or, you know, at the local German bakery. I could definitely see see why people enjoy it. So I'm going to give this a three and a half out of five stars. Not bad. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I, I expected when I when I poured these and we tried them that we would all kind of make funny faces and, you know, turn our noses up at them. I've had really, really super sweet non-alcoholic beers in the past. This is definitely on the sweet side, uh, but it's, you know, malty. It's a little darker. It's, it's really not that bad. It's perfectly drinkable. Uh, I'd give it a 3.25 out of five. That wraps us up for the day. I appreciate you joining us, and thanks for sharing the highlights, Kate. Cheers. Cheers.